Welcome to the BT Focus podcast dedicated to the behavior technician experience and the delivery of ABA services. Hello and welcome back to another edition of the BT Focus podcast. We are going to jump right in to a continuation of man training, and I'm joined again by Ian McGarvey. Morning, Ian. Brian, another day. Another another, another great day, talking behavior analysis and a topic so great, we couldn't just fit it all into one episode. We're, we're coming back, we're circling right back to functional communication training, specifically man training. Uh, what do you think about just doing a brief recap where we left off? I think that sounds like a great idea. All righty. So in our first episode, in part one, uh, here are some topics we explored. One, defining man training. Right, as a command, a demand, a request. Um, we also discussed what makes man so great, especially in the role in skill development and language development, in addition to problem behavior reduction. We talked about what man's look like, the different forms, if you will, between vocal language and verbal behavior, such as sign language, augmentative device, etc. We also talked about how we go about selecting specific mans for your learner. And so... We're going to jump right into the next question, Ian, which is, how can a behavior technician arrange the environment for success with man training? What are some thoughts and considerations there? Yeah. So whenever we are teaching a child to request for things, there's a prerequisite that must be occurring in that moment to teach a child to man, and that is... Motivation. They got to want whatever it is that we're asking for, right? If you put something that the child doesn't want in front of them and try to get them to, to ask for it, you, you're not doing yourself any favors and you're not doing any favors for the client. When we know a child has motivation for something, it, it helps make the connection of when I want something, I engage in this response, I get what I want. And we create that three-term contingency, if you will. Normally, we would talk about a discriminative stimulus but a man should be under the control of motivation rather than an SD, as we would say. So to recap, in simplest terms, there needs to be stuff or people or activities that the client wants, first and foremost, right? So having effective preferred, uh, preferred items or reinforcers, right? So the environment needs to be rich with things that the child finds motivating. What else, Ian? So once we've got that stuff in the environment, we're going to make that stuff fairly uh, frequently and immediately available. We might even put stuff in reach when we first start teaching man training, just so we can further assess motivation. But when we have instances where we're, we're pretty familiar with a client, we know what they're going to likely be motivated for. We want to make sure that those things aren't directly accessible. And we put them places where the child's not going to be able to access them. And we use a procedure with which we call incidental teaching. And that essentially outlines what I just said. When we know clients have are going to have motivation for certain reinforcers, we make it so that they're unaccessible so that it creates a, just an extra bit of motivation. So when it was present, you know, it, when you see something you want, for example, if I saw a bowl of chips in front of me, oh, I, I, yeah, that bowl of chips is right there. And if I want it, I'll reach for it, right? Well... If I'm getting really hungry and that bowl of chips is out of reach, sometimes by making it a little further away, not away, just 
out of sight or anything like that necessarily. But sometimes if I just put it enough out of reach where it's going to require a little more effort, that also just adds a little bit of motivation for the learner. Um, and that can be the difference between them needing to request or just deciding, you know what, uh, I'm good. I'll find something else. And if motivation is high enough, they're going to they're gonna man for it. Absolutely. That's a great point. It's making that connection to the learner that my verbal behavior results in the delivery of that item. And it just, it makes that connection stronger, but you know, not, not reserved to just food or tangible items itself. Like I see this a lot with activities, you know, you're, um, I'm pushing my daughter on the swings, right? So I'm pushing her on the swings and when it gets to the bottom, I'll wait. Sometimes it's just a pause or a delay, which will then sort of evoke that verbal behavior of more please daddy, whatever that might be. Or, you know, you're blowing bubbles with the kid and that brief pause where they would man for more or whatever the request is that you're teaching. Um, that motivational distance, if you will, just making it a little bit greater um, with those delays or putting items out of reach is a really great way to, I would say, contrive motivation. Um, and other times, as it's just naturally occurring, you can just capture you know, that motivation as it just naturally occurs in the environment. So very good. Great considerations, Ian. Agreed. My next question, thinking about some of the core skills and responsibilities of behavior technicians, data collection, what are some approaches to data collection for man training? It's a great question. So first and foremost, you know, again, just in talking about data collection in general and the importance of taking data as a behavior technician, um, if there are two things that have to go hand in hand, it's when you work on building skills, there must be data collection to go with it. Um, and in this case, when you're in an environment where there are reinforcers to be accessed by a client, we have to know, were there trials being completed of this child requesting because when the behavior analyst comes in for their weekly visit, they're going to want to see that data and be able to make decisions based off of that data. And for me, when we're talking about early learners and manning, there's two important pieces of data I want to see. I want to be able to see the percentage of prompted versus spontaneous for individual mans. So ideally, in your programs, hopefully your BCBA has put in specific man targets for items, activities for your clients to request. And if not, one very, very beneficial thing, again, when we're talking about communication between the technician and the, the BCBA, Brian, who is a great advocate that's around the client the most that should be saying, hey, these are some great ideas for man targets in the client's program. Yeah, absolutely. And so when those targets are set, sometimes you'll see targets in terms of, um, frequency or, or rate. The goal would be we want to see 10 spontaneous mans per hour, let's say, or 20 total mans. And you, you made a good point of looking at the percentage of spontaneous versus prompted mans, right? And over time, we would expect to see a shift as the client gains more independence. We'll see more of those spontaneous or unprompted mans occurring. Um, it's also, it's really, we talked about how man training is so powerful in its role between uh, skill development and problem behavior reduction. Some of the coolest graphs I think you and I ever see are uh, ones in which we see the rate or the frequency of man's increase. Yep. <laughs> We're both doing the same slope yep. of, of 
demographic. Uh, but as we say, the, the rate of man's increase, the rate of problem behavior, or duration of problem behavior decrease. We'd say they're inversely related when that occurs. So, and, um, and yeah. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to jump, jump and cut, but, oh, but just piggy, piggybacking off what you were said. So the second thing that, that so you beat me to it, which is great. The, the second thing in regards to initial meaning that should be tracked along with the percentage of correct, uh, excuse me, prompted versus spontaneous responses for individual targets, but also knowing the percentage of prompted versus spontaneous responses within a session, which again comes back to, we want to know the rate of spontaneous and prompted demands within a session. So again, again, for you behavior technicians out there, a second thing I would advocate, because again, you guys see the clients more than, than your behavior analyst is, you should always be providing feedback when you can, is if there is not currently a way, excuse me, if there is not currently specific mans being tracked or there are not the rate of mans being tracked, those are things you should ask your behavior analyst to put in the program. And one common question that I might get from a behavior analyst is, well, what's the best way to track the rate of mans in Care Connect? And it's a great question. And there is actually a really, really easy way. And when we talk about the BIP section in Care Connect, oftentimes we think of the behavior intervention plan section as this is where we're going to track problem behaviors we want to decrease. But that's not necessarily the case. So one thing that I ask my behavior analysts to do is to put behaviors to be tracked. You add spontaneous mans and prompted mans as two separate behaviors to be tracked. With that, alluding to what you mentioned earlier, I typically then would set a, a daily goal uh, for the rate of mans for a client. So for example, I think we touched on this in the first episode, I had a behavior technician who client was e exhibiting some self-injurious behavior. Just by putting in a man goal, we saw a direct reduction in the self-injurious behavior. So I put in a man goal that the client would have 40 combined spontaneous or prompted mans within an hour in a three hour session. So 120 mans a session. The technician has hit that for two straight weeks. And in the two weeks we saw a nice, pretty decrease in, in self-injurious behavior. Yeah, that's a great point, Ian, because I think that it is sometimes easy just to envision, um, you know, some of those uh, continuous measurements of uh, frequency or duration as just being tied to behaviors that we're looking to decrease or maladaptive behaviors, you know, the frequency of elopement or the duration, but also it can be used for behaviors that we want to increase then the amount of sign language. That's that's that was a great one that I've done in the past, the amount of spontaneous mans. Um, and yeah, you're right within our electronic data system, it could be easier. It's just a couple simple taps and you've got it. Uh, back in the day, thinking back to me, the behavior technician before we had a, a sophisticated data collection system. Ian, do you ever have a frequency counter? I'd have those like, you know, as like Batman's utility belt, you could just click, click whenever a behavior occurs. Um, you're looking for it on the desk. Oh, there we go. You, you, you are the clearly you a behavior clipper, And then you put all your clickers on the, on yep. the and you attach that to your belt loop. That's right. Yeah, you got it. You got I it. I miss yeah, those days. Oh, great. Yeah, throwback for sure. Best best data collection systems are the ones that are quick and easy to capture. So um, that's excellent. Well, good. Well, to transition a bit from data collection within Manding, um, within our team meetings uh, this past week, we were talking about some pro tips for Manding. And, and you brought up two great ones, which are the concepts of transfer trials and time delays. Would you describe each of those for us, Ian? Sure. Brian, I'm going to take a, a half a step back first before we go to that. So when okay. we're looking at the prompting of, of mans, when a child is initially learning to mand, 
and we look at, we talk about the building blocks of, of the verbal operants. The echoic comes first, and that's when a child learns to repeat things that they hear in their immediate environment. And we use that echoic as a building block to, for the child to learn the mand. So for example, if a child's really motivated to play with a ball, we would prompt them to initially man for that by saying, ball, and then when the child repeats, we provide access to that reinforcer. So the child, again, continues to make the connection of, I say what the person tells me to say and I get what I want, or I get the item. In this case now, we add in a little tweak because when we teach a coex, there's no necessary motivation for the item being echoed. But now with demand, we are using things we know there's motivation for. So we're adding that motivation piece to the three-term contingency to make the connection of that word you're specifically saying gets you this specific item. When we teach initial meaning, we must use that echoic to, to do so. And if we use any other verbiage, it can cause confusion. And also the literature shows that using anything else but the echoic likely can, uh, can cause what we call faulty stimulus control. And, and I won't go into great detail about that, but essentially in a nutshell, what that means is the child may learn to only mand when they hear a verbal stimulus other than a coic. And the common one you hear is, what do you want? Uh, I, can, I can tell you how many times, can't tell you how many times I've walked by clients in the center that I'm in and I see a client engaging maybe in a problem behavior or something's going on. And then the minute I hear the phrase, what do you want? The client immediately spits out a man. And what that tells you is there was likely motivation before they heard that phrase. But once they heard that phrase, they knew that the, the reinforcer was available. So they manded. We don't want that. We want the client to man just because they are purely motivated. And that's why we call it a pure man versus what they would say is, is an impure man. Um, the other piece then there too is that the point you brought up is transfer trials. Well, if, if a child always gets X reinforcer immediately after the echo, how are they going to learn that just saying on their own gets them access to the reinforcer? And so the next important piece of teaching means is what you alluded to, Brian, is transfer trials. You can use one of two different transfer trials when teaching mans, and, um, they're pretty complex to do. They, they were difficult for me to learn as a behavior technician. And the first one is you use what's called differential reinforcement. You change how much reinforcement you give differentially, you know, since the verbiage. So essentially, if the child needs to be prompted demand, you only give them a little bit of what you got. So for example, if it's edible, I might just give them like a couple really small pieces of chips versus when I get that first spontaneous man, they're getting maybe not a handful of chips, but you want, you want them to visibly see the difference. And in fact, I've actually coached technicians to show clients a difference. Like in this pile, I've got some small chips in this pile. I've got big chips. And when we're working on a manning session, when there's a prompt needed, they visibly get the smaller chips. So they see the difference. Um, and and, and that's very, yeah. And over time you're going to, allocate the responding that's going to result in a greater degree of reinforcement that's what makes differential reinforcement effective right Which if we i were to call say, yeah matching yeah. law <laughs> matching law boom you got it if i were to say hey ian i'm gonna pay you 20 dollars an hour to help me um, move some mulch in my backyard or i'm gonna pay you 500 dollars an hour to do it by yourself i think you're gonna say okay i got it brian check out for a little bit. <laughs> this mall to take care of itself. Yeah. And, and I retract my statement. Comfort. Technically this wouldn't apply to matching law because matching law refers to the schedule and not to the amount of reinforcement. So I apologize. Uh, I'm cut it, uh, <laughs> good. Cut that out. But, yeah. um, 
But so then the second way you can do so is by increasing the response effort to access the reinforcer. And what I mean by that is, is if a child um, has been prompted to mand and they mand, what you can often do is require them to re repetitively mand for that reinforcer. And I don't mean that you're going to sit there and require them to say it like 10 times, but oftentimes making them say it a second or a third time to access the reinforcer, it increases the response effort and they learn if they say it by themselves, only one response is necessary versus two or three. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really comprehensive. And I, I think that differential reinforcement, it's such a, it's a skill that takes, uh, it's experiential learning, right? You have to practice it to see the effects over time, but you're right. If it's whenever there's a behavior that we're trying to increase, how can we reduce the response effort for that behavior to occur while increasing the, the magnitude of reinforcement, that's how we're gonna see behavior change occur. I, I get more of the reinforcer now when I say it by myself. Um, and it's it's a pretty powerful tool once the child catches on. Absolutely, yep. I, I can speak firsthand of the, the amount of time and effort that went into teaching that first man, but once it occurs, we talked about behavioral cusps, right? And it was, uh, then it just the rate exploded. So um, for those of you staff who are just starting the work of man training, keep it up. You're going to see the results over time. So yeah. I got one more pro tip that I want to talk about, Ian, which is uh, the role of time delays. Absolutely. So once you've taught a man and, it, and the child is maining spontaneously, every once in a while, you get instances where the child just maybe kind of briefly forgets what they're supposed to do. And in those situations where you're confident that the child should have the response in their repertoire, we highly encourage you to use a prompt, which Brian said is called a time delay. And as the, the name probably says, all you're going to do is insert a pause where you would have initially provided a prompt to see if the child will do it on their own first. And this is also a common place where I often hear technicians use that catchphrase, what do you want? And how I try to explain this, the use of the time delay is you know exactly probably what it is the child's motivated for, or you may not, but if you do, you essentially want to kind of play dumb. And I'm using quotation marks that people can't see with my hands, but you essentially want to kind of play dumb as if I know what you want, but you don't know that. And I'm going to sit here and pretend I don't and act and just wait you out. Um, and the rule of time delays specify, oh, you should wait a, a short amount of time, like two seconds and build it up. But you know your clients well enough. Um, if you're truly confident the child is just not producing the man, again, tie back to Greg Hanley, we use a, a, a procedure which we call pressing the EO. It's kind of a, is a similar thing here. By, by extending your time delay and waiting longer, that oftentimes can produce additional motivation and contrive the man that we're looking for. Yeah. I like to use the term expectant gaze where I don't need to provide any verbal prompt for, like you said, learners who have already demonstrated that manned repertoire but if it's not occurring, sometimes, you know, really skilled behavior technician, just providing that look and that delay is enough to help the client emit that response. And it's maybe a good way to prevent some of the prompt dependency, if you will, on the, that verbal SD of what do you want. Sometimes you can remove that completely. And just a time delay in itself is a great natural way to evoke that behavior. So 100%. very good. And let me just, I, I, I know we're, we're running short here, but I want to, do want to point something out. There are times where it is appropriate to use the phrase, what do you want? And that is with clients who have the ability to respond to that question. But when we have clients who are in that position, we're now using the phrase, what do you want? Not as a prompt for a man, but as a preference assessment. We're now asking the client what it is they're motivated for that we aren't sure of. 
Um, so again, we're looking to use this phrase with clients who have the ability to vocally tell us where motivation lies when we are unsure versus with clients who aren't necessarily verbally able to express motivation without having to be prompted. That's a, that's a really good distinction, Ian. I, I completely agree. Excellent. Well, hey, I got another question to build off of that last statement. So what might be some considerations for practitioners um, before increasing the complexity of man's? We were talking about this a bit before we started recording today. Yeah. We want to do everything in our power to promote the child learning to request their wants and needs. And the one thing we don't want to do is we don't want to increase the effort it takes for the child to access reinforcement to the point where we essentially punish their, their manding abilities. So for example, common thing I hear a lot of behavior technicians and BCBAs wanting to do is add in carrier phrases. I want, or can I have, or add what we would call social pleasantries, please, right? The, the thing we have to always remember is the function of this behavior is to access reinforcement. So when we're initially teaching, we should be very receptive to just accepting one word mans or sounds or, you know, wherever your learner is at. And we don't want to increase that response effort too quickly after they've started learning to man. We want to make sure that they've really established a repertoire. And I believe the literature says around 10, 10 mans before we decide to add any extra language to that, or as we would say, autoclitics to that language, which is a complex term we will not talk about in this, but, but to be specific. Um, yeah, that's a great point because what you were just describing is the role of shaping in behavior, right? And it's important that the behavior is first occurring at a frequency and at a level that is allowing them to access reinforcement, decrease problem behavior, and then, yes, over time, we can gradually build in those so social pleasantries, if you will. Um, but it needs to be done with close attention to, like you said, the response ever involved so that the child can be successful. Yep. Excellent. Tied into that exact point, Ian, what do schedules of reinforcement, one of your favorite topics, have to do with manned training? Yeah, this can go in two different directions. So the first direction we'll go with is... When a child, and, and this really is kind of actually going away from manning here for a second, and this is when a child is first learning a new skill, and so this does apply to mans, if you will. When a child's first learning a new skill, we put it on a schedule of reinforcement, which we call a fixed ratio of one or continuous reinforcement. Every time they engage in a new response, they should receive direct reinforcement for doing so at a certain you know developmental level. But at a certain point, we want to, what we call thin the schedule of reinforcement, where Previously mastered responses don't necessarily evoke or don't necessarily earn, excuse me, direct reinforcement. And so when you're teaching clients new skills, eventually you thin their schedule of reinforcement by making them do multiple tasks to access reinforcement. Well, eventually, even doing multiple tasks together, whether it's three, five, six, seven, shouldn't also then directly result in reinforcement. Eventually, when a client has built their schedule of reinforcement enough, that schedule of reinforcement should result in the opportunity to mand for reinforcement. And we actually condition the mand as a part of the chain of responses in that schedule of reinforcement. And so the child eventually learns that they're not going to receive direct reinforcement from finishing that last response, but they're getting the opportunity to mand for reinforcement. Yep. 
Yeah. So well said, Ian. So said another way too, when we're, we're trying to initially shape a behavior, we're going to be reinforcing early and often and every time, right? That's a continuous reinforcement or the fixed schedule one. Um, However, as that skill goes on, we want to set them up for success in life. And the schedule of reinforcement of life is unpredictable and uh, intermittent, you could say. So we will reinforce a little bit less frequency. Maybe we're going to honor the man every two responses, every three responses. And it will vary over time, right? We want to start a behavior and strengthen a behavior through continuous reinforcement but we want to maintain that behavior over time with intermittent reinforcement because that's what they're going to experience in everyday life. So, yep. all right. I got one more question for you, Ian. It's, and it all ties to this last point as well is what are some good skills to teach following man training or alongside man training? And this, and this still goes hand in hand with the last point. And this was the, the second branch that I was going to go off with. So I'm glad you asked the follow-up question because I, I might've forgotten. After we teach manding, like you just kind of alluded to, the world's not always nice to us and we don't always get what we want. And I'm just thinking of that song. You know, you can't always get what you want. Yeah, I did that. Um, feel free to cut that up if you want. I'm just kidding. Don't cut it. It's Danny. Um, <laughs> but the world's not always nice to us and we don't always get what we want. And so we have to learn to accept that even though sometimes we ask for things, we don't always get it. And so initially, again, going back to the schedule of reinforcement, like you mentioned, after we've taught a child to uh, mand and has an established repertoire, again, the literature says about 10 mands, eventually we're going to start telling that child no intermittently to those things. And at first, when we teach this, we're, when we're teaching in a contrived setting like we do in, in, in ABA and discrete trial training, we're not telling the child no because there's necessarily a real life reason why they can't have such item. The reason is, is because we want to prepare them for the times when there is a real reason they can't have something. And so oftentimes we start by teaching what's called a tolerance response, where we teach the child that initially just accepting the word no will get you access to reinforcement. Still going to get you the item or something close to it um, just by by being able to accept hearing that word or phrase of no, not right now, wait, whatever it is. And in fact, a lot of clients that we, we take in uh, initially, they've already been exposed to those phrases and those phrases alone immediately can evoke some severe problem behavior. Um, I know I've had multiple clients where just the word no, hearing the word no, not even the context of being told no, just hearing the word no in the environment evoked problem behavior. There was a, just, there was a history of punishment from that word. And so sometimes with kids, we have to first desensitize them to that word. And we do so by teaching them this tolerance response, where at first we might just say no and give them their reinforcer, but eventually we're going to give them a response to provide where we tell them, you know, you just, you can't have that right now. And they might say, okay, that's cool. And just by engaging in that response, then we reinforce from there. And we've got this long list of skill building we can do via, you know, Greg Hanley's skill-based treatment procedure where eventually, yes, no is going to mean you don't get this and don't get this for quite a long time. But in the beginning, it, we can't expect a child to actually just cold turkey. No means you're not getting this. Um, yeah. That, again, that, you know, we've talked about extinction and, and the use of that previously. Doing so is going to result in us having to use what we would call an extinction procedure, which then is going to result in 
escalated problem maybe from the client becomes a power struggle. Yeah. And I, and I think that you brought up a good point of just building in that flexibility within the client's repertoire to be able to tolerate a no, because life is not on a continuous schedule. It's on an unpredictable intermittent schedule. So what that might look like, my kids, it's, it's time to head upstairs for bedtime. And I say, okay, it's time to turn off Dora the Explorer. Sometimes if they say, okay, daddy, I might say, you know what? You handled that so well, we can watch for one more minute. Right. And, and hopefully that reinforcement will strengthen that tolerance response so that, yeah, sometimes when they ask for more time, it's going to result in more time. Sometimes when they ask for more time, it's going to be no or not right now. And if they respond appropriate to that, sometimes that will result in that reinforcement. So uh, we want to strengthen those behaviors over time. And it's tied very closely to man training. All right. Any final parting words, Ian? It can't be stressed enough the importance of teaching this skill to early learners. It's it's the foundation for much other more complex verbal behavior. It's the building block for the tact, which we will eventually also talk about, um, which then becomes the building block for the intraverbal, which is conversational language. And then the sky is the limit in regards to continued vocabulary uh, acquisition for clients. Um, and, and it doesn't come to that point unless the child first learns these building blocks of the echoic and the mand. Absolutely. Well said. So what you're saying is tune back in for part three, four, five, and, and continue, uh, as we uh, move through these verbal operants and as we, uh, teach these important and essential life skills of communication. So thank you as always, Ian, until next time. Thanks, Brian. Hi, BT Focus listeners. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. Now, we want to hear from you. Drop us a line at our Google Voice account at 248-215-2464 if you have any thoughts, ideas, or questions. You may even hear them on the air. Or drop us a message at btfocus at centriahealthcare.com. Until next time.